Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city." Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Today's passage is a familiar one. If you grew up in church, uh, you're familiar with this passage of the Tower of Babel. Uh, We're going through a series in the book of Genesis. We've been going through it chapter by chapter, and the story is starting to speed up a little bit. If you'll notice, we finished the story of of Noah um, last week, and this week we skipped chapter 10 and went to chapter 11, and that's because chapter 10 uh, is the table of nations, and it's kind of interesting the way that the author did this. It, It kind of goes after the story of Babel, but it's position there in a literary fashion uh, to make a point at being before uh, the Tower of Babel. So we're going to come back to the Table of Nations a little bit next week or in a couple of weeks. Um, but it's also um, similar to a genealogy. We did a whole sermon on, a geneal- on genealogies a couple weeks ago, so I just didn't want to uh, force you uh, to sit through that again. Um, but you can go back and listen to it. Anyways, we're in Babel this week. In this story, we have this super familiar passage where people are gathering together, they're making a city, and they say, let's build a tower into the heavens. And so these people, they're showing unity, they're showing a common vision, they're showing ambition, and it seems like they're showing a desire for God. They want to build a tower to God. And so as I read this passage, man, I'm just filled with questions. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, what, what's the problem here? Why does God get so upset? And why does he respond in this way? Why does he make them speak different languages and disperse them all over the earth? It's, it's an interesting passage, and there's a lot of questions to answer here. Also, like, what does it all mean? What does this mean for me? This is ancient history. What does it mean for me? And so let's just dive right into the passage. When, when we look at this, there's, there's three points that I'm going to draw from this passage. And the first point is, what's the problem? And the second point is, what does God do? And the third point is, what does it all mean? So what is the problem? What does God do? What does it all mean? Number one, what is the problem? Let's just go verse by verse through the passage. Verse one, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. This story picks up Many, many years after the story of Noah that we heard last week, the, the people have multiplied, they're able to build a civilization, and what we see is that they're not doing what God told them to do, which is be for, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They're not going all over the earth. Instead, they've gathered into one place, and they have 
one language and the same words, or more literally, one lip. Verse 2, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now this little verse sounds like just random geographical details, but it's there for a reason, as everything in the Bible is. When you look at this random geographical detail, one, you find out archaeologically where they are, and so archaeologists can go and study this place where this happened and find evidence for it. But two, it's saying that they're coming from the east, that as people migrated from the east, and that's something that's easy for us to look over, but this has been significant every time it's popped up through Genesis so far. When Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Which way are they expelled? The author is careful to tell us that they are expelled to the east when Cain sins, when he murders his brother, and he's sent out from his family. Which way is he sent out? But he's sent out to the east. It seems like every time God's people move to the east, they're migrating not just to the east, but they're migrating away from God. And so this is an important feature of this text, that the people are moving away from God, they're moving to the east, and they're being, they're they're ignoring God's command to fill the earth. They're staying together, trying to preserve what they're doing there. So verse 3, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen is kind of like asphalt. Uh, to help you understand what that is. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. So they want to build a city and they want to build a tower with its top in the heavens. This tower might actually be better translated as a heaven-topped tower, not just a a tower with its top in the heavens, but a heaven-topped tower. And when we think about High towers in our modern language, when I say a high tower, the immediate first thing that comes to your mind is usually something like the Empire State Building or something like the Pru or what used to be called the Hancock Tower. I don't know what it's called these days. Things take different names. But those would have only come to mind for people that have been alive for the past 100 years. Continually, we've been doing this over and over every week as we've come together to talk about Genesis, is we've been considering what an ancient hearer, the original listener to this passage, would have thought of when we got to these passages. And so what would an ancient hearer had thought of when they talked about this was really clear. It it was kind of obvious given where they were located in that plain of Shinar and given just what they understood about architecture uh, at that time, is that they were not building a skyscraper, they were building a ziggurat. A ziggurat is kind of like a man-made mountain, and it has these stairs, very large stairs, that one can climb up, and they were built oftentimes throughout the Middle East, and they were seen as kind of like a temple. And when you got to the top of the ziggurat, which this man-made mountain, probably not as tall as what you have in mind, um, but when you get to the top of it, it's like it was supposed to symbolize this place where heaven and earth were overlapping. And I really like the way that the Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna describes the ziggurat. He says it's like this, rooted in earth with its head lost in the clouds, it was taken to be the meeting point of heaven and earth. 
and as such, the natural arena of divine activity. On its heights, the gods were imagined to have their abode, constituting the obvious channel of communication between the celestial and terrestrial spheres the sacred mountain was looked upon as the center of the universe, the navel of the earth. And so you have this temple tower that the ancients were building, the people were building. And it's this place where, in their mind, the heavens overlapped with the earth. And that might sound familiar to you if you've been here for a few through this whole series because there was another time when we had a, a place where the heavens were overlapping with the earth and that was in the Garden of Eden when God would walk in the cool of day with his creation. The heavens overlapping with the earth and he commissions Adam and Eve to go and subdue the world and with it we, we think maybe he's calling them to push the kingdom of God to fill all of the world as they go and subdue it. And so here we have these people who, it seems, are attempting to get back into Eden. They want back that creation. They want to be back with God. And when we say it like that, it sounds like such an innocent desire, does it not? Isn't it the the longing of each of our hearts to be with the Lord, to be back with him? But then we, we pick up on what's going on a little bit deeper and the next verse, because it says, Then they said, Come, let's, let us build a city, or let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so instead of taking the kingdom of God and pushing it all over the world, they're saying, Let us keep it to ourselves and let us make it for ourselves and let us make a name for ourselves. It doesn't have anything to do with love for God, but love for self here. And when they say, let us make a great name for ourselves, what does it mean? It's an ironic statement because no one actually gives themselves a name. Everyone is born nameless and your parents give you a name. Now, to make a name for yourself is a colloquialism that we all understand. Because it means I'm going to be somebody. People are going to know my name. Or maybe it means I'm going to rename myself to give myself a new name. But people will know who I am. And this desire lives within all of us. To make a name for yourself is to show that I'm not just some number in your system. I'm not a nobody who will be forgotten, but I'm a somebody that people know. When, I say, when you say my name, people will recognize it. I'm that guy, I'm that girl, I'm that woman. I'm recognizable. I've built a name for myself. I'm a somebody, I have a purpose. And in order to make a name for yourself, what do you have to do? If you're trying to make a name for yourself, what do you do? You, you have to prove yourself, right? You have to prove yourself to be unique. You have to prove yourself to be special. You have to prove yourself to be competent. You have to prove yourself to be someone worthy of being known, worthy of being remembered. 
You have to perform. You have to impress. And this desire is a natural tendency of the sinful fallen heart. We all have a desire to make a name for ourselves. And it really just depends on who you're talking to for what this looks like. Some of us seek to make a name for ourselves through our careers. I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. I'm going to make a name for myself. People will know who I am. Others of us seek to make a name for ourselves in academia. Others seek to make a name for themselves through their influence through social media, through how creative they are and how popular they are on social media. Friends, the city has a tendency to draw all of these people who have a desire to make a name for themselves to the same place. And so as you walk around a city, or maybe as you sit in a church in a city, you're surrounded by people who have this desire and who really, with most of the things that they're doing, are saying, look at me. I'm a somebody. I matter. I'm not a number in the system. I have a purpose. I am here to make a name for myself. Because if you're in a small town and you don't want to go down in obscurity, where do you go? You have to go to the city. People migrate to cities like Babel to make a great name for themselves. If you want to make a name for yourselves in finance, where do you go? You go to New York. That's where all the finance people are. If you want to make a great name for yourself in fashion or in being a chef, you have to move to Paris. If you want to make a great name for yourself in the tech industry, San Francisco is the place for you. That's where they all are. Or, you know, the area, the bay. If you want to make a name for yourself in academia, I don't know a better place. Where, where we are right here, Boston, Cambridge, Somerville. This is I just threw Somerville in there. We don't really have much. <laughs> we'll, we'll claim it, you know. Cam Boston, Camberville, uh, this is where you need to go. You know, if you want to move, um, if you, you want to move to a place like Chicago, you can make a name for yourself in... Uh, Competitive pizza eating. I don't know. Everywhere has a place that we have a way to make a name for ourselves. And so these people, they're in Babel trying to make a name for themselves. And they decide to make, build a tower. Now that might feel a little like an odd way to make a name for yourself. But then think about it for just a moment. Some of the most famous towers we know have people's names on them, do they not? Trump? I mean, everybody's thinking it, you know, and I can, I'm allowed to speak his name. He has a building. He put his name on it. Um, no politics in this message. Just Trump has a building with his name on it, and he's well known for it. He's made a name for himself. He's built a building with his name. And... And now I'm talking like him for some reason. Um, and it's a way of saying, look, I'm a somebody. I'm a somebody. Friends, this sort of ambition that we all feel, we all feel this sort of ambition. You wouldn't be in this city uh, for very long without feeling a little bit of this. And it's just a natural ambition of our heart. But this sort of ambition, it is born out of a deep, 
insecurity. That I'm not enough. That I'm not known. That I'm not loved. I have to go and prove myself. That's what it's born out of. It's born out of a desire to be known and loved and valued more than what you have already experienced. Friends, no one knows you better than God. You are fully known. Now that feels threatening a little bit because he knows you all the way through to your heart. He knows the desires of your heart. He knows you that much and yet he loves you still. This is the good news. That there is someone who doesn't only know your name but knows everything that goes with your name and who loves you in spite of all of that and who says you are valuable enough for me to send my own son to die on your behalf. You see, you're valued. He cares about you. You don't have to make a name for yourself. You're fully loved. All of man's accolades, all of man's praise could never fill the hole in your heart that is screaming, God, will you love me? God, will you know me? Because he loves you and he cares for you. In Christ, you're given a name. You don't have to make a name for yourself. He gives it to you freely. He calls you child. He calls you bride. He calls you out. He calls you beloved. He calls you my own people. My chosen. Friends, God is not merely tolerating you as many of us imagine he is doing. That, yeah, he just tolerates me while I just mess it up over here. No, his love for you is more than mere tolerance. He loves you. In Christ, you are more than enough. You don't have to prove yourself. It's like you're walking down the street, unemployed, looking shabby, and someone comes up to you and says, hey, they're giving away jobs in there. All you need to do is go ask. And you're like, I don't, have my, I don't have my interview clothes on. I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. What type of job is it? I don't know. I don't have all the perfect answers. And then you go up there and you feel so insecure as you wait in the waiting room, feeling like I don't have my act together. I can't prove that I am worthy of being hired. And then he comes out and he says, job's yours. It's not because of what you've done, but there was someone that came before you. He was perfect, and he said, you're with him. So the job's yours. You're in. Friends, we are so trying to put on our clothes to prove that we are a somebody. We're trying to memorize our lines and get all the answers correct and say that I can do this. And a lot of you just need to know that God loves you because of what Christ has done and not because of any name that you can make for yourself. You might be a failure here on earth. You could be a complete failure, a royal screw-up, and yet be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the teaching of Jesus. 
counterintuitive. It's against our nature. The people of Babel, they might be united, but they're not dedicated to God. In their unity, they're avoiding God's commandment to fill the earth and subdue it. And so in their unity, they're actually doing an interesting thing. Um, In their unity, because they won't go throughout all the world, in their unity, they are suppressing diversity. They're saying, we will stay together, we'll all look the same, we'll all dress the same, we'll all speak the same. And they're suppressing diversity in the process. This is racial suppression. They're actively avoiding ethnic diversity. They're saying everyone must speak the same language and dress the same and function according to what the majority tells us that we have to function to. And God comes down to actually force an ethnic diversity. He wants diversity. And he comes down to force a diversity on God's people. And it looks like a punishment, but as with many of God's punishments, it's actually a gift leading them in the right direction. So point number two, what does God do? Verse five, I love verse five, okay? If you have your Bible open, look at verse five with me. It says this, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. When I was in seminary, I was taking a Hebrew exegesis and syntax class. All right, that sounds complicated. My Hebrew is terrible. Um, Lowest grade I made in seminary. Anyways, um, it was with a well-known professor. His name was Peter Gentry. Uh, He's a Canadian professor. He's actually very well-known in the Hebrew world. And uh, what we did in this class was we opened Genesis, and we started with Genesis 1, and we took turns reading verses in Hebrew out loud and then trying to translate it. It was miserable. And we got to chapter 11, pretty quickly. I mean, this is like all we did in this class. And we got to chapter 11, and we read this verse, or someone read this verse, and they, they read the Hebrew out loud, and they, uh, however it goes, they just read it out loud. And the, and the Lord came to, down to see the city and the tower when the, which the children of man had built. And my professor, this old man, he's probably 70, white beard, big glasses, eccentric professor guy, we're in tweed. Um, and he Here's that verse, and before anyone has a chance to try to translate it, he just starts laughing like a Batman villain. He's like, ah, ha, 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 ah! He's just going nuts, laughing. And we're like, this guy has finally lost it. He's crazy. What's going on? And he says, what? You don't get it? God's funny. He's telling a joke. And we're like, still don't get it. And he says, The Lord came down. You see, these people, they thought they built a tower into the heavens. But the Lord, he had to come down just to see their tiny little puny tower. (laughs) And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It sounds like God is saying, oh no, what am I going to do? The people, they're working together. They're going to overthrow me. I have to do something. But friends, that's not really what is happening here. God is not personally threatened by his creation. Instead, he's actually concerned for not his own safety, but for the safety of his people. 
for his creation's safety. Again, the Jesus Storybook Bible nails it, as it often does. Sadly, Lloyd-Jones, in this wonderful (laughs) biblical commentary, we'd all be served to read it from time to time. It says, they were trying to live without God, and God knew that that wouldn't make them happy or safe or anything. If they kept on like this, they would only destroy themselves, and God loved them too much to let that happen, so he stopped their plans. And so what does God do? Verse 7, he says, come, let us go down. Let's stop right there for just a second. Let us go down. This is language that we've become familiar with. It's the divine plural. Here God is speaking to the other members of the Godhead. Let us go down. And we saw it in Genesis chapter 1, and here we see it again, that the Trinity has been weaved into the story from the very beginning. This story actually has a lot of echoes of Eden, and we can cover more in the Q&A of that if you're interested. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. It's actually interesting. They come together to build a city and a tower so that they will not be dispersed, and yet ironically, when they build the tower, that is the thing that happens, is that they are dispersed, their nightmares become reality. In verse 7, it says that God's going to come down and confuse their speech, but then in verse 8, it just says that the Lord went down and dispersed them. So it could have happened two different ways. They could have woken up the next morning, and all of a sudden, every family is speaking a different language, and it's like you're in a foreign movie without subtitles, and you have no idea what to do. And so everybody just disperses. That could have been the way that he did that. Or maybe he sent them out And that is how he founded the different languages. As they go out, they all developed a different language as they lived in isolation from one another. We don't know. It's a bit ambiguous how exactly this happened, but we don't need the exact details. The fact is it happened. In verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And this concludes, for the most part, we might swing back in here from time to time, this concludes uh, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, which most commentators say is the first part of the book of Genesis. After this, the story changes a lot. The story zooms in on one family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and spends the rest of the, the book, 39 more chapters, 38 more chapters, on that one family in those four generations. And so we've gone through a lot of ancient history to this point. Um, For the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a series in Advent, and so we're going to be stepping away from Genesis, but in January, come back and we're going to be diving into that epic story of Abraham and his sons and his grandson, of his son and his grandsons. And great-grandsons. I guess it's son, grandson, great-grandsons. There we go. And so I think we should just take a moment uh, to step back and ask ourselves, what does it all mean? These first 11 chapters, what does it all mean? And I think one thing that we see in these first 11 chapters is 
man's desire to take the control of life for themselves, to build their own Eden, to be like God. And God's knowing that that will never make anyone happy or safe for anything. And his continual, gentle correction of that. We see that over and over and over again. But then we see these echoes in the New Testament all the time of God undoing the effects of the fall and undoing some of the things that happened in this passage. For example, in the New Testament, we come to a story that's almost the exact opposite of the story of Babel. And it's in Acts chapter 2, we get to the day of Pentecost. And there are people from every tribe and tongue, and they're gathered together in Jerusalem. And Jesus has already ascended. But then they hear the sound of a wind come through the building. And all of a sudden, people who don't speak the same language understand each other's languages. Miraculously, they understand one another. And it's like God is unbabbling Babel. He understands now that the kingdom of God is to go throughout all nations, people, tribes, tongues. And he's sending them out. He's not having to confuse their language to send them out. But he's helping them understand one another to make not their names great, but his name great. And so, supernaturally, he's unbabbling the effects of Babel. When we look at the teaching of Jesus, it stands in such stark contrast to the story of Babel, does it not? Jesus teaches us how to make a great name for ourselves, and he says to make a great name for yourself, to be great in the kingdom of heaven, is to be the last on the kingdom of earth, in the kingdom of earth. The very least of us on earth will be the greatest in heaven. He says that the meek will inherit the earth when heaven fully comes down. He's made a new heavens and a new earth. And the Lord rejoices in humility over pride. The people of Babel were trying to get to heaven in their own strength. They were trying to build this thing on themselves. And what we see in the New Testament is that our attempts to get to heaven in our own strength always fail. They always fail. Jesus teaches us that he is the gate, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. So instead of working our way to heaven, heaven comes down to us. You see, friends, the message of the gospel is not that we must build a tower to God, that we must build a name for ourselves so that God will finally see us, but it's not a tower from the earth leading to heaven, but a tower from heaven leading to earth. Heaven comes down for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then one day, Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, this is what's going to happen. The, the, uh, John the Revelator says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, as it describes the city coming down from heaven. It is a perfect cube, the same dimensions as the temple. It is a holy temple city coming down from heaven to fill the earth. It is massive. Like, I did the math one time, it was like 1,500 miles. Like, you would not, it would just be like, that's the whole sky. Um, coming down to fill the entire earth. 
with the kingdom of God. You see, friends, God's vision has always been to fill the world with his glory, not just one small place with his glory. The people of Babel wanted ethnic uniformity. They wanted one ethnicity, one language. In the new heavens and new earth, what we see when it comes down is that every tribe, tongue, every language is represented. It's not like we go back to one language, but God rejoices in the diversity. Friends, Christianity is the only religion that has no ethnic home. It is the only religion that has spaced throughout all ethnicities, all peoples. It has no central place. It is as easily understandable by people in China, people in a remote tribe, people in in Russia, people in South America, Africa, Europe, North America. They understand it differently, potentially, a different aspect of it because they come from a different background, but it's understandable and applicable and needed. It's a human message of good news. It has no primary culture. And so you'll never understand everything you can about the gospel unless you know people from different cultures so that you can understand how they understand it in different cultures. And one thing that this passage is teaching us, one thing that it means is is this, that uniformity is cheap. But God loves diversity. God loves diversity. MLK Jr. said that 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the country. And that's a complicated problem to solve. That's a complicated issue. If you want to have a multicultural church, which we do, we want to have a multi-ethnic church, we want our church to reflect heaven as much as we possibly can, It's a complicated thing, why it is. But, and it would be so much easier, and in fact this is what most churches have done, to pursue a mono-ethnic church where everyone is the same, that likes the same music, that likes the same style, that likes the same sermon length. But that's not what God's called us to do. God has called us here to be a multi-ethnic body, a body that looks as much like heaven as we can get it to look like heaven. And there's a lot of different ways that we need to grow in this. We have not arrived. If you look around, you might see people from different ethnicities and whatnot. They're making a big stretch to be in this church oftentimes because this church still functions, for the most part, in a majority culture. One big reason is because I am white, And I'm the pastor of the church. But friends, there's a lot of different things that we have to do to better be representative of the kingdom of heaven. But I'll just give you one tip. And it's this. Don't assume that your way is the normal way. And so when someone does something that's different, it's not necessarily wrong. Now, if it's sinful, it is wrong. (laughs) Clearly, clearly. But something that feels sinful to you, sometimes you got to sit back and be like, wait a second, what are they trying to communicate? What is going on here? And the impetus for this falls more on majority culture that knows that, that feels like their way is normal than it does on minority culture, that kind of lives in, in between two worlds all the time, oftentimes. 
And so if we want to be a church that represents the kingdom of God, that's one thing we have to do. We have to go out of our way to intentionally make space and to listen and care for people from different backgrounds and to represent that in how we worship and in how we interact with one another. Lastly, friends, the vision that God gives us doesn't end with our little church. It doesn't end here. God's mission is a global mission. He disperses them. Instead of everyone gathering in one location to make our own name great, God has commissioned us to scatter all over the world to make his name great, to move forward the kingdom of God throughout all of the world. Our mission is a global mission. We have to find ways to support missionaries and to send our own people all over the world. Maybe God has been calling you to that. Friends, we have to tell the world of the good news of Jesus, the good news that his body was broken, that his blood was shed for us. And he's given us a symbol to remember that today, to remember what he's done for us today. And we take a sacred meal each week that we call communion. And as you take this, you're remembering what Christ has done for you, that his body was broken for you, and that his blood was shed for you. That you are of value enough for that to be done for you. It's a gift. Church, let's stand and pray as we prepare our hearts to sing and to receive this meal. Father, as we receive the meal that you've placed before us now, as we are reminded of your body that's broken for us and your blood that's shed for us, we pray that you will help us to understand the gospel in a new kind of way. This free gift that comes from Christ, that we don't have to make a name for ourselves, but that you have made a name for us and you've given it to us and that you cherish us and we are of value, that we don't have to live in our insecurities because You hold us dear and near. And Father, I pray that we might experience that in a new kind of way. And I pray also that our church will represent the ethnic diversity that you rejoice in, that you love. And God, may we take the steps necessary to better reflect the kingdom of heaven, better reflect our neighborhood, to be people of understanding, not of uh, racial oppression as, as... It can be, but of people that seek to celebrate your good gift of diversity, tribes and tongues and different languages. And so, Father, we pray that our heart's song will be one full of grace and truth and love for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.